0: Right, let's go into our teaching for today. We are in uh, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 18. We have been going through a series on the life of David for quite a while now. We've been taking our time looking at all there is to see here, the different insights and trying to soak all the wisdom we can out of it. And so today we are in, a, uh, in an episode, one of the critical episodes in the story of David and David's life We've slowed down to look at this story with a, in a little bit more detail than some of the others, so today's going to be our last day looking at this specific story, and we're going to keep moving on in David's life. So, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 9, and I'm going to jump down and read a little bit from chapter 19, because this story goes across both chapters. Alright, so we're going to read 9 through 17, and then go down to 19, so... In 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 9, it says, Absalom was riding on his mule when he happened to meet David's soldiers. When the mule went under the tangled branches of a large oak tree, Absalom's head was caught fast in the tree. The mule under him kept going, so he was suspended in midair. One of the men saw him and informed Joab. He said, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. You just saw him? Joab exclaimed, why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? I would have given you ten silver pieces and a belt. The man replied to Joab, even if I had the weight of a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For we heard the king command you, Abishai and Atai, protect the young man Absalom from me. If I had jeopardized my own life and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have abandoned me. Joab said, I'm not going to waste time with you. He then took three spears in his hand and thrust them into Absalom's chest. While Absalom was still alive in the oak tree, ten young men who were with Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Joab blew the ram's horn, and the troops broke off their pursuit of Israel because Joab restrained them. They took Absalom, threw him into a large pit in the forest, And raised up a huge mound of stones over him, and all Israel fled, each to his own tent. In chapter 19, in verse 1, it says, It was reported to Joab, the king is weeping. He's mourning over Absalom. That day's victory was turned into mourning for all the troops, because on that day the troops heard, the king is grieving over his son. So they returned to the city quietly that day, like troops come in when they are humiliated after fleeing in battle. But the king covered his face and cried loudly, My son Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have shamed all your soldiers, those who saved your life, as well as your sons, your wives, and your concubines, by loving your enemies and hate those who love you. Today you have made it clear that the commanders and soldiers mean nothing to you. In fact, today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, it would be fine with you. Now get up, go out, and encourage your soldiers. For I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be with you tonight. This will be worse for you than all the trouble that has come to you from your youth until now. So the king got up and sat in the city gate. And all the people were told, look, the king is sitting in the city gate. Then they all came into the king's presence. So as I said, we we've, we've slowed down in our pace going through this series to look at this story, this this episode in David's life where Absalom, one of his sons, had risen up in rebellion against him. And then in chapters 18 and going into 19 here, we see the victory over Absalom in the rebellion. We slow down in this story because there's a lot to learn here, and we've been looking at David and each one of the major characters in this episode. So we looked at David and Absalom, his son. We looked at David and Ahimaaz, the uh, priest's son, who was involved in the uh, who, who was involved in Absalom. I'm sorry, David's side of this conflict, and who was the one who volunteered to bring the news to David that the, the victory had been won, but he didn't tell him that Absalom had died. Now, today what we're going to do before we move on in David's life is look at David and Joab. Joab was the head general, the lead commander over all the other generals and commanders of David's army, one of his most elite soldiers. If you've been with us through the series or if you've read 1 and 2 Samuel, Joab is a familiar name. He has been a major character throughout much of David's life, and he's been next to David at his side ever since David was in the wilderness, running away from Saul, whenever Saul was still king. Joab, if you read about him over the course of all these years and these chapters, he's somewhat of an enigma. At times, Joab is the protagonist of the story, and he speaks and acts with wisdom. At other times, Joab is the antagonist. He, uh, he will act out of impulse, and he will do things that not maybe not necessarily intentionally, will subvert the cause of David's kingdom. And sometimes he will act and will even speak foolishness rather than wisdom. This makes him, like I said, kind of an enigma, someone who's a little confusing for us to read and understand, like, who is God, this guy and what should we think about him? But Joab reflects one of the reasons that I love the Bible. And here's why. Because Joab, like all the other characters in the Bible, are realistic. He's realistic. Whenever you read about Joab and the enigma that he is and his ups and downs and his sometimes acting with wisdom and his sometimes acting with foolishness, you know what? He comes across as very real because it's based on a real person. It's telling us true stories about true people who lived and existed. And you know what? Whenever you read stories about real people, this is what you get. Because this is what we are all like. We're all enigmas. This is the problem of just understanding humanity. We have our heights, and we have our moments of acting like uh, acting in wisdom and speaking with wisdom. And then we have our lows, and we have our times of acting in foolishness. Right There is the glory of humanity and the depravity of humanity. We cannot separate the two. They are all mixed in, both, in each and every one of us. Real people are complicated and enigmas, just like Joab. The Bible tells us real stories about real people. This is why we we see this very realistic character. So we see all this in Joab, and in spite of the maybe confusion that we might say about him, there's one statement that we can confidently make about him, and that is this, is that like many warriors, Joab being a warrior, He is a man who is driven by duty and responsibility. Whether he is acting out of wisdom or out of foolishness, we can always say he is doing it out of some perceived duty that he has. He's a warrior. That's what they do. So, what they live by. And so in this story, where I think in this story he is a protagonist, okay, we'll we'll, we'll see that, stick with me. In this story he is acting right. We learn about Christian duty. We learn about duty and responsibility from Joab in this story. And so the question is, what can we learn about Christian duty and responsibility through this imperfect man? We're going to learn a couple of things about Christian duty and then learn where it comes from or what grounds our duty. So we're going to look at Joab's insubordination, Joab's alarm, and then lastly, David's tears. Let's begin by looking at Joab's insubordination. So if you've been with us the Passover weeks or have read this story, then you might remember, it's not in what I read today, uh, because I just read you the most relevant pieces for the sake of time, but you might remember in the beginning of chapter 18, whenever this episode starts, where the forces on David's side and the armies of Israel being led by the rebel Absalom have gone out to war. And before David's army marches out to go to war against Israel and Absalom, he has his generals there, Joab being the head over all of them, and then the two other main guys beneath him, which were Abishai, one of Joab's brothers, and then a Gentile named Ittai. He has them before them, and then all the army. So everybody hears it, everybody knows. He says to them, Treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake. These were David's last words to his generals. Before, they marched into battle, and like I said, words that were heard by all of the army. This is why a messenger comes to Joab and tells him, um, we found Absalom hanging in the tree. And whenever Joab questions him, well, why didn't you finish him off? He says, well, because we heard what David said. He said, we heard what David said, and we're not going to go against the king's wishes. These were David's last words to his general. Treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake. Because after all, Absalom was still his son his own flesh and blood. But Absalom was a rebel. He was a rebel. He had acted in treachery. He had acted against his own father, against his own nation and kingdom, and against God. But in spite of all this, David says, deal gently with him. Now let us ask ourselves, this request from David, is that either right or practical? By right, I mean, is it morally Right, Would it be justice? And after all, as the king, he is responsible for justice. Would it be justice and would it be practical for Absalom to be dealt with gently in this battle? It would not be justice. It would not be right. Absalom deserved judgment for his, first of all, if you go back far enough to chapter 13, you remember, uh, for his murder. Absalom had murdered his brother Amnon in cold blood out of revenge. He had murdered his own brother. That's why he ended up having to flee. He comes back to the kingdom, and then he acts in treachery. He's a murderer. He acts in treachery. He acts in deceit, and then he launches an all-out rebellion. He deserves justice, would require judgment on Absalom. So is it just? Is it right? No. His request was not right. We might be sympathetic towards his fatherly heart, in and in, in, in desiring that his son be somehow saved in this episode. But we must recognize that the sympathy is misplaced. Is it practical? No. You cannot crush a rebellion without crushing the head of the rebellion. You know, you, you cannot kill a snake without cutting off its head. And Absalom was the head of the serpent of this rebellion. If the rebellion would be ended. And remember, all of Israel, except for Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, stayed remained loyal to David. But the rest of Israel was on Absalom's side. It's neither just nor is it practical for Absalom to be spared what he had rightly coming to him. And so whenever they discover Absalom, vulnerable, hanging in the tree. Joab, in this moment, knew that he had a duty as a warrior in Israel's army, or the Lord's army, as he had a a duty to do what was right over what was ordered. Whenever we read this story here, we see that Joab uh, practiced direct insubordination. He went directly against the orders of his king. Now, look, this is a monarchy. David's the king. They they didn't make decisions here in this situation by consensus. David made orders, and they were to follow them and obey them. So whenever Joab found Absalom, and he struck him down, and he had his soldiers execute him in that moment, he was practicing direct insubordination to David. Because Joab was a wise man. Now, I said sometimes he acted in foolishness, but he was, okay, maybe, let's say he was a realist, and he was intelligent, and he understood what needed, what had to be done in this situation. So, Joab, being a man of duty, recognized that he had a duty to do what was right and what was needed over what was ordered to him. You see, David as well had a duty as king. He had a duty to execute justice, to bring security and unity to the kingdom. What was required by that duty was that Absalom receive justice. David as king had a duty, but he let his sympathy get in the way. He had a duty that he was unwilling to do to secure the kingdom. And so Joab took the responsibility that David absconded. And God's word vindicates Joab's actions. Because if you go back and look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14, the narrator tells us that God had ordained Absalom's destruction. So whenever we look at David's wishes and Joab's wishes, we look at David's orders and how Joab was insubordinate and disobeyed those orders. As observers trying to make sense of this situation, we ask ourselves, Who is vindicated? Who is right? Well, God's word rules over all. Who was in line with God's word? Joab. Joab carried out God's word in this situation. He is vindicated because the Lord had ordained Absalom's destruction. In Joab, we can see that there is a higher word that requires obedience than even the word of kings. Here's our first major point. Christian duty might occasionally require faithful disobedience. Christian duty might occasionally require faithful disobedience. Here's what I mean by that. This this point applies to any authority in our lives. We all live with different authorities in our lives. We all as citizens live under the authority of our government and of the state. Some of us we if un- unless you are, you know, a business owner or entrepreneur, we live under the authority of bosses and or of supervisors in our life. We live with spouses. We live, some of us, with parents or of teachers or administrators or whoever else. We all live with various different uh, authorities in our lives. And God's word teaches us that we are to be obedient to the various authorities in our lives. We are to be obedient to the government as it has been ordained by God. We are to be obedient to parents. Uh, we are taught that we are to be obedient to our bosses or those who are in authority over us. However, our ultimate allegiance and our ultimate obedience is to the word that goes above the word of any of these other authorities in our lives. And that is God's word. And so the question is, what do we do whenever one of these other authorities in our lives, their word goes against God? The Lord's. What do we do in this situation? As we see in Joab, and I can show other examples in Scripture, we obey God's word over the words of man. Insubordination to man, for the sake of obedience to God, is righteous. Let me say that again. Insubordination to man, for the sake, this is important, for the sake of obedience to God, whenever they're in conflict, this is righteous and is vindicated by Scripture. Let me give you an example. In 2010, there was a Congress that was called by this group called the Lausanne Movement. It's an evangelical movement uh, that was begun earlier in the 20th century of uh, various church leaders from around the globe who initially at the heart of why they gathered together was to try to launch a, a, a kingdom movement where evangelicals around the globe were working together for world evangelization. So they gathered together and they made agreements on what defines us as evangelicals and what binds us together and what we are committed to and so they made they made some commitments and some statements on uh, just what it means to be a follower of Christ that go beyond evangelism, but the the core was like, what do we find unity in so that we can now move forward in world evangelization? That's what it's about. So they've had different what they call congresses or these meetings together. And in 2010, after a few decades, the Lusanne movement was planning another congress in Cape Town in South Africa. And they had invited uh, leaders from the house church movement in China to to come and be a part of the Congress because they saw the incredible evangelization that is happening in China through the house church movement. Now, what you need to understand about the context of China is that the government is, yes, an atheistic state. However, what they uh, have done in the decades since Maoism is they've moved away from just a state-enforced atheism upon all the people to instead establishing churches of various religions and denominations that are state-sanctioned. And so there's a state-sanctioned church for Protestant Christians. However, Bible-obeying, God-fearing Christians in China, many there's debates, but, but many of them recognize that to be in a church that gives allegiance to the state rather than ultimate allegiance to God is disobedience. Therefore, they have the house church movement. So these people, these these leaders from the house church movement were invited. 200 leaders from across China were invited to go to the Cape Town Congress. And whenever they went to the airports across the country, the Chinese authorities knew that they were going, that they had been invited. And so they stopped them at airports, took their passports, and had detained them from being able to go. In response to this, there is a leader, one of the foremost leaders of the house church movement, named Wang Li. And Wang Li, after this situation here, decided that he needed to to write an apology. Now, what I mean by that is not an apology and asking for forgiveness, but something similar to what Tertullian did in his apology. Apology in the sense of defense, coming from the Greek word meaning defend. Wang Li writes his defense of the house church movement in in uh and what it is, and how it is a movement of civil disobedience to the government he wrote this to the churches and then had it published uh publicly. I was able to talk to someone who um this week, named Hannah Nation, who has edited a book of Wang Lee's letters and of other letters and uh, writings from leaders in the house church movement. I was able to talk to her this week for my podcast. And in the book, Faithful Disobedience, where we can read Wang Lee's letters, he said this. Remember, that this was after his detainment by the government. He said, on the one hand, we obey the government's legitimate and common government uh, governance, respecting the power of its sword, On the other hand, through nonviolent, civil disobedience, we will preach the word whether in season or out of season. People can be chained, but the gospel cannot be chained. The servants may be killed, but our Lord has already risen. What does this mean for us? It means resist evil and obey God. Resist evil and obey God. Friends, as I said, it is good and right for us to obey the various authorities in our life. We honor and glorify God whenever we do so. However, we also honor and glorify God whenever we are led by, uh, by wisdom and uh, justified through Scripture to disobey these authorities whenever their word goes against the Lord's and prevents us from obeying God as we have been called to do. Now this is important. Any disobedience must be considered carefully because we are taught to obey the proper authorities in our lives. So we cannot just out of a rebellious spirit or because we don't like being told what to do or because of a don't tread on me mentality begin to disobey and resist. This is neither right nor just. We must carefully consider when is the appropriate times and when a, an authority in our life, like I said, whether it be government or a boss or a spouse or whoever else, tell us something that goes against what God has said. Uh, If you download my notes, I put in there some footnotes that can give you some other resources that'll help you to learn about resistance theory and help you to understand when it is appropriate and when it is justified. Uh, Faithful Disobedience, that book, I'd recommend it as well. Let me give you just a couple of questions as you think about this, because like I said, it's relevant even if we're not resisting a state. First of all, ask yourself, is this a legitimate authority? Is this a legitimate authority? In other words, let me remind you, do not allow sin to rule over you. We might find ourselves at times having been deceitfully led into obeying sin, whether it lie in our heart or a sinful structure that has been opposed uh, on us by someone from outside of us. Whether that be someone who uh, who is a wicked person or who represents a wicked worldview or a wicked system. Is this a legitimate authority? Friends, especially followers of Christ, examine your heart, look at your soul, and be sure that you are not allowing sin to rule over you, as we are told in Romans 6, chapter 1. Do not allow sin to rule over you. So is this a legitimate authority? Ask yourself that. We are told in, in, in the Scriptures what are the legitimate authorities of our life. Now, secondly, we can ask ourselves, is this a legitimate authority acting outside of its sphere? Is this a legitimate authority acting outside of its sphere? So, is this a legitimate authority in terms of, we're, we're told by Scripture that the government is a legitimate authority over our lives. It has been ordained by God for, uh, for justice and for, um, for the good of its people and so on. Uh, we're told that, our, uh, that those that we work underneath, those are legitimate authorities. Right, uh, I you know I believe that God has called the husbands to be the leaders in the home, and so this is a legitimate authority. But this does not mean that any of these authorities that God has ordained have absolute rule over their sphere, and it also means that whenever they step outside of their sphere, they are no longer legitimate. Is this a legitimate authority acting outside of its sphere? If the answer is yes, then I, then I believe you are vindicated by Scripture to civilly disobey that authority. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the apostles said, we must obey God rather than people. And the famous quote from the Protestant leader John Knox said, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. So wherever they might be, in government, in a home, in a workplace, resist tyrants, and obey God. Let's look at Joab's alarm. We, so we see his disobedience earlier in chapter 18, whenever he follows what was his duty to do what was right over what he was ordered. But then we go down to chapter 19, and after David has learned that his son Absalom was, uh, was killed in battle, he weeps over it. He cries at the end of chapter 18 and going into 19. My son, my son, Absalom. Absalom, my son. It's a heart-wrenching scene. It's difficult to read, you know, especially if you go back and go back and reread this later, all of chapter 18 going into 19, the narrator takes painstaking detail to tell us about the emotional state of David throughout this whole ordeal and and the, the rising anxiety that he felt waiting to hear the news. And then he finds out the worst news that he did not want to hear, that his son had died. His son was struck down in battle. And so he cries and he mourns. Now, what's the effect of this? Whenever we go into chapter 19, we see that as he is mourning, the soldiers come back from battle ready for victory, ready uh, ready to revel in victory, ready to celebrate the Lord's deliverance and the Lord's securing of his kingdom against the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of his kingdom, and the rebels who had tried to take it over. They came back excited, ready to celebrate, you know? But then they go and they find their king, instead of celebrating, is mourning. And it tells us that it had turned the attitude. Instead of celebration, all the soldiers began to go to each of their tents or each of their homes as if they would after being ashamed from fleeing from a battle. David's emotional state had this effect among his soldiers and his people. And so Joab is called. He comes in and he sees what is happening. He sees how David's Uh, mourning is affecting the soldiers, how they are now ashamed of their victory whenever they should be celebrating. They should be celebrated by their king. And he also recognizes that he is in jeopardy of losing the people who were devoted to him, even in spite of their own safety. He might lose them. And so Joab goes and he gives David a reality check. He tells him, look, you're about to lose everyone who has been faithful to you, All those soldiers who went out and risked their lives and who, uh, who sweated and who shed their blood for you, you're about to lose all of them. He tells them, you have to stop mourning, get yourself up, and go out there and be the king, the leader that your people need. David's mourning was jeopardizing the victory as those who followed him were dismayed. Once again, we come to a a, a situation in in this passage where it's kind of confusing and it's hard to make sense of what's going on here, what we ought to think about it, how we ought to read it, right? because we see a father mourning the death of his son. Any of us can be compassionate towards that. However, on the other hand, Joab makes sense. What do we make of this? Is David's mourning wrong? Is it inappropriate? No, it's not wrong. Even in spite of all that Absalom had done, a father's love is unconditional. And a father would mourn his son. Is his mourning inappropriate? No, not at all. But he has a duty as king. He has a duty as the king in this situation that supersedes his emotions. Though his heart is broken, and he wants to indulge that broken heart. There's nothing wrong with that. And mourn his son the duty of his office of being the king, of holding the seat in the Lord's, of holding that seat in the Lord's kingdom, has a responsibility on him that calls him to go against even what his a broken father's heart wants. David's responsibility requires him to go against what he feels in the moment. This is what Joab tries to get him to realize, and David ends up doing. Here's our second point about Christian duty Christian duty will frequently require going against our emotions Christian duty will frequently require going against our emotions we can see this in various different examples and situations in our life let me just give you an anecdote from my own life I'm always very hesitant to give myself as examples because I don't want to make it seem as though I'm saying you know I'm, I'm great at this any one thing but I just I, I thought this would be one of the most appropriate. I had to do. I've only done a few funerals in my life, and they were all for family members. My very first funeral that I ever preached and officiated was for my grandmother, the first grandparent that I lost, and a grandmother that I loved and dearly and was close to. I was broken by her by her loss, but I was called by my family as being someone who was in ministry to serve the family by being the one to officiate the funeral and to help in that manner. This was the calling on my life come to me through my family, but ultimately a responsibility, a duty given to me by God. And so my duty in that situation required that I had to postpone my mourning for the sake of my family, to serve them with a clear mind, to serve them with all the energy that I could in the preparation for the funeral, my own preparation for the, the service, the preaching of the funeral. And then in one of the hardest moments is we end the funeral, and everybody, you, you've done this before, you walk by the coffin standing there, next to my grandmother and consoling my family as they came by, my aunts and uncles that I'm I'm near and dear to. I'm broken as well, but I had to be strong for them in that moment. And then I had to mourn later. You know, I didn't didn't have all of these reasons and explanations in my mind at the time. All I knew was this, is that this is what God has called me to do. I have to do it now. It's my responsibility, and I'll I'll have my time of mourning later. That's okay. There's many different times in our life where we might be called to something similar. For you, it might also be a time of tragedy where you are as affected by the tragedy as the community around you, family, friends, or uh, the city around you. You are as deeply affected, but you know that you are called by God in that moment to maintain composure and to be strong for the sake of your community, and you will be allowed to mourn later. We can see it in times of suffering, of tragedy. but We can see it in many other situations in our life. Whenever we have a duty to work hard, whenever we want to be lazy. Sometimes your emotions tell you, I just want to take a break. I just want to stop. I don't feel like doing this or that today. You know, it can be just the routine duties of your job. It can be the routine duties that you have in the household. And you, want, you say, you know what, I just want to scroll through social media right now. But your duty, your responsibility, has a higher calling over your emotions that requires you to go against your emotions in that situation. Another example would be of whenever you're called to speak the truth, whenever you are afraid to. Your heart is telling you, I don't know how they're going to react. Maybe it's a a hard word of truth to someone who needs to hear it, and you're afraid of the conflict that might spark. Maybe it is a word of truth in evangelism, and of sharing the gospel with someone, and you're afraid of what kind of awkward situation it might create by bringing up religion or by bringing up Jesus or of sin and judgment. What will you do? Will you listen to your emotions, or will you obey the calling that God has put on your life? Giving. There's times when we are called to give, even whenever we're afraid to, even whenever we don't feel like it. Giving, whether it be of our finances, like a Fifth Sunday giving, Right? or maybe giving of our time and of our emotions. And we say, I don't feel like giving away this this hour or this time that I had. But duty calls you to. What this means for us is fulfill your duty despite your feelings. Fulfill the duties and the responsibilities that the Lord has put in your life despite what you might be feeling in that, in any situation that you're in, like I said, in situations of tragedy, in situations of the workplace, in situations of the home, in situations of conflict with your spouse, and you feel like raging against them, right? you feel like punishing them for the sin that you feel that they have committed against you, or will you do your duty of being patient, of being loving, of, being, of showing grace and mercy right? with your children? that have been disobeying you, and you are ready to rain down the iron fist of justice? (laughs) You, You parents know what I'm talking about. Or will you accept your calling instead against what your heart is telling you, to be the parent that God has called you to be? In any situation, ask yourself what is required of you. Ask yourself questions like, what does God expect of me here? Don't just listen to your heart. Don't just listen to your emotions. Praise God. Sometimes they are in line with what is God's will. And the Holy Spirit, as he continues to sanctify us, more and more shapes our heart in alignment with God's will. But not always. So we need to ask in faith and in prayer, "What is? what does God expect of me? Ask, who has he called me to be in this situation? Like I said, in my own story of having to officiate a funeral for both of my grandmothers especially, um, ask, who has he called me to be in this situation? And so what does that mean? How, how does that mean I need to act in it? Ask yourself, what responsibilities has he placed on me? Before I move on, let me add this. You aren't always required to be the speaker or the strong one or the one to give. Not always, not always. You know, there's times whenever you you might go through a tragedy, if you ask those questions in faith and in prayer, God tells you, this is your time to mourn. Right? He welcomes you into experiencing his consolation. He says, I don't need you to be strong for me or anyone else right now. You're not always called to be that person. So I don't want you guys to leave hearing this section of the sermon saying, well, what I need to do in every situation, right, is, is, is try to accept those duties, right? Ask first. Go to the Lord in prayer first. He might not always call you to be the speaker, okay? You might go through situations where you see an opportunity for the gospel or for to say a hard truth that someone needs to hear, but in prayer the Spirit might tell you, no, you're not the one, or this isn't your time. Whenever there is an opportunity for giving, an opportunity to meet a need, sometimes you're called to be the one to sacrifice, but sometimes you're not, Okay? So you aren't always required to be the one. But when you are required, whenever you know that God is calling you, then you must step up and answer the call. (sighs) Certainly a hard word for David to hear and hard for us to hear. Nevertheless, even still, in spite of the office that he held and what it required of him, it's difficult to read David's cry, my son, my son. He mourns even that Absalom had died instead of himself. In 1833, he says, if only I had died instead of you. Any parent can identify with that sentiment. However, what we must realize as we read and observe this story, what David needed to realize too, is that Absalom died for his own sins. David could not have died for Absalom. David, it would have been wrong for him to die instead of Absalom. Absalom's destruction and the end that he faced in being executed, hung from a tree and buried in a pit covered with stones. Remember, the, these details of Absalom's death are signifiers of the type of death that he experienced, a death which was cursed by God, because the scriptures say, "Curses the one who hangs on a tree, and for the one who is judged by God, he has to be buried under stones. Absalom was judged by God for his own sins, as difficult as that is for David, and as difficult as that is for us. However, if only David knew, and if only we would remember and remind ourselves that though it would not be Absalom or Amnon or Solomon or any other son of David, there would be a son of David who would come, who wouldn't die for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And that would be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the true Davidic king that even David himself was pointing forward to. Jesus would have no sins of his own for which it would be just for him to die for. He was the only righteous man to ever live, the only man who completely and fully obeyed God and fulfilled his duty to the Lord. And yet, despite his righteousness and obedience to God, he would die for the sins of others. He would die for our sins. There is no justice for him to experience that would have been his. Instead, he took on our justice and our judgment. And so here's what we learn. For us, there is offered freedom and forgiveness in the gospel. But there is also offered in this gospel of the son of David a grounding for all of our Christian duty, as we have been talking about today. Our last point is that Christian duty always finds its origin in the son of David. Christian duty always finds its origin in this son of David. When we look at Jesus, we see that Jesus was obedient to the Father over and against both the authorities and the devil. He resisted the devil whenever the devil tempted him in the wilderness to obey him. This is an illegitimate authority, and Jesus rejected Satan's attempt to practice authority over him. We see Jesus also resisting the governmental and, uh, and worldly authorities of his time. We see him going against the Sabbath rules of the Pharisees. We can see it in places like Mark chapter 2, verse 24, whenever he heals a man on the Sabbath, something that they had outlawed. But he knew it was better to obey the Father and to obey his calling than to obey their words. Ultimately, he was obedient to resist their illegitimate authority to the point of dying on the cross. Jesus also fulfilled his calling in spite of what he felt. We read in the Gospels and in places like Mark chapter 14, 32 through 42, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, desiring that the cup before him, his calling and responsibility from the Lord to accept our sin and judgment, he prayed that the Father would take it away. It was not what he desired, but... He submitted his will to the Lord. He said, but not what I will, but your will be done. He fulfilled his calling in spite of what he felt. You see, all of our Christian duty, whenever we are required to, whether it be submit and obey the authorities in our life, or whether it be to uh, resist illegitimate authorities and tyrants, whether it be to go uh, and find our, or, or, I'm sorry, fulfill our calling, In spite of what we feel, all these things we find grounded in fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the founder and finisher of our faith, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12 and as we sing. It is all grounded in Jesus our Lord, the Son of David. That doesn't mean that it's not going to be difficult at times, or that it might not be confusing, and it takes some searching of the Scriptures and going to the Lord in prayer, but ultimately we find it all grounded in him. The last thing that I want to say, wait for the day when the Lord will wipe away every tear. As we leave this story of David, Joab, Ahimaaz, and Absalom, and David crying, my son, my son. We cannot yet still leave this story, even in spite of all that we've learned and read, and not feel compassion for this mourning father. And so I say, wait for the day when the Lord will wipe away every tear. David's mourning, whenever we read it, it's hard for us to not get this, get this sentiment, this feeling, we, that David's mourning had been compounded by his own guilt. It's hard not to hear an echo of that, where if he cries out, my son, my son, he said, if only it, it would have been me instead of you in 1833. Because remember, all of the trouble that has come upon David's family and upon David's kingdom is because of his sin. Back in uh, chapters uh, eleven or twelve, yeah, back in chapters eleven and twelve, we read about David's great fall and his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. And then the prophet Nathan comes and pronounces God's judgment on David. David does not die for his sin; he is redeemed. He's saved from that judgment and forgiven by God, but yet there are still consequences. And Nathan tells him back in uh, chapter 12, 10 through 12, that trouble would come upon his house, that the sword would come upon his house. And so in a sense, all of this that we're reading about even now in this chapter is due to David's sin. And he He remembers that. It's hard not to get the sense, like I said, that that he remembers that and he realizes that even as he is going through this mourning over his son. And so we're left with this paradox at the end of the story of a safe kingdom but a sad king. Even in these situations where we mourn both the brokenness of the world, the sin of others, but even our own sin that adds into the brokenness. And the sometimes paradox that we feel of rejoicing in the forgiveness from our sins, and yet also still mourning over our sinful state and those actions and the way we, we behaved in situations that we regret. Even in our own paradox of mourning over our, our own sin, remember to cast yourself upon the son of David who bears our griefs. You know, this is probably why the Bible says that in the end, it's going to take God himself to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Revelation 21 4. And so, as you mourn the brokenness of the world and your own brokenness, your experience and victimization from the world, as well as your own adding to that brokenness, remember what we were reminded in Scripture. In Isaiah 53 4, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So, lay your sorrows upon that son of David. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace. Lord, even whenever it is difficult and we we praise you for your grace through our tears. Through our tears over our own brokenness and our own sinfulness, our own disobedience. The effects that we see it bring about in the world, the way that we have seen it add to the brokenness of the world. And as we mourn even over the brokenness in the world that we haven't even contributed to. Father, we rest in this great news and in the hope that we have that ultimately you will be the one to wipe away every tear one day. That you do not ignore and that you have not missed any of our tears. That you did not miss even any of the tears of David as he wept for his son. But that you remember them and that you will bring us consolation. We thank you for these things, Father. We ask that you would help us to ground and find all of our Christian duty and all that that requires of us and means for us in any given situation of obedience or of civil disobedience, of uh, following duty over our feelings, Father, let that all be grounded in Jesus Christ as we look at him, as we fix our eyes upon him, the founder and finisher of our faith, so that we might live and walk and believe and speak as we ought to in the light and righteously before your eyes. Lord, let our our obedience and our resistance and all these things be for your glory above all. We pray this in the name of our King, the Son of David, Jesus Christ. Amen.